Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will pick up the text in Genesis 3.8 and continue discussing the idea of broken fellowship as we look at the... uh, the consequences and the effects of the fall that were outlined for us in verses 1 to 7. Going back to the beginning of verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And uh, we already noted that there was broken fellowship, and we saw that there was a pure relationship defiled. And we also see that they have an attempt to hide themselves from God. Uh, Not only in verse 7 do they see that they are naked and attempt to hide their nakedness by sewing loincloths made of fig leaves together, uh, which is ineffective and uh, it's terrible, and we looked at that. But now they further try to hide themselves from the Lord by hiding among the trees of the garden. And so we see that it's really impossible to hide from God. I think we touched on that already, Uh, but you just can't do that. And because sin is now a part of the world and it's a part of creation, it has entered into creation and uh, affected it wholly, we have to understand that this is now man's propensity is to try and hide himself from God. And we're always running from God, always trying to twist God's word, do all the things that we talked about, that process of sin, uh, introducing doubt and then twisting the scriptures and then outright lying about the scriptures. We do that when it comes to God as well. Uh, We doubt God's existence, then we try and twist his existence and his being and what he stated about himself into other things. And we downright lie about him And in the process of all that, not only do we have a disfellowship with him, uh, but we, if we even have an, an inkling that he is who he is presented in the scriptures, then we try and hide from him. And of course, we looked at that in the previous episode that we have a perfect case in point and illustration in the person of Jonah. We're trying to hide from God, and that's just absolutely futile effort there. Also, we see God's omnipresence outlined for us, specifically in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, that you just can't go anywhere in all of creation and hide from God. It's simply not possible. And part of this broken fellowship we see then as they heard the sound and they hid himself, or they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, but we see that they're guilty. Uh, Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, it's an interesting question because it's not as if God needs to hear the answer from that. It's not, in, in other words, it's not that God doesn't know the answer, but God wants them to answer him because this is this is uh, broken from their normal pattern. Even if it's only a few days old, they had no reason to run and hide from him. There's no reason to fear. And because they're not there, he asks the question, and the question itself is going to bring about their guilt. 
And of course, we see that as the text goes on in verse 10. And he said, this is Adam speaking, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So now we have an admission of guilt here uh, in verses 8 and 9. They are hiding themselves. God asks a question that's going to bring out their guilt, and the answer does as well. Because he says, I was naked, that was something that he had not known until he disobeyed the voice and command of God. And he had no reason ever to hide himself before. Now he has hidden himself. Now we have a problem. There is guilt here. Uh, But then following guilt, we see a spiraling downward cycle here uh, that sin produces. And Now it's not just guilt, but immediately it shifts into blame shifting, starting in verse 11. And we read this, and he said, now this is God, who told you that you were naked? So there's one question there, who told you you were naked? Well, the answer to that question is nobody told them that they were naked. Satan didn't say that. Uh, No one had said that. But then he follows that up with another question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we have two levels of blame shifting going on here. First, when God asks Adam about his disobedience, Adam immediately says, well, the woman did this. And when he asks the woman, the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me. All of this is true. Did Eve give Adam the food? Yes. Did she pry open his mouth and make him eat it? No. Uh, Did the serpent deceive Eve? Yes. But did he make her sin and do that? No, he simply tempted her by the means that he does, which is doubt and deception, distortion, uh, all those things. And so uh, we see this progression. By the way, this is outlined for us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, where we read uh, about the whole order here. Uh, with regard to creation. And this is speaking, Paul is, of course, speaking to the church. But here in verse 14, we read, and and when I say it's to the church, all of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy is an instruction to how the church should uh, function in a healthy way and the relationships that should be present and how how the men and women should behave themselves and, and conduct themselves in corporate worship. That's all of chapter two. And then he gives some reasons for that. And this is really interesting, and we don't have time to do a deep dive into this. Again, uh, we will eventually go through 1 Timothy. But Paul gives a command in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's important that we quote that. Uh, not because we're going to do a deep discourse on that verse, but he goes on and gives the reason. And if you don't understand the reason, then you are going to 
come to a false conclusion about verse 12, which I believe many people do in the church today. This has nothing to do with a woman's ability, her intellect, any of those things. It has everything to do with what happened at the fall. And so he says here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, after he gives this uh, really this command, this mandate, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She, rather, she is to remain quiet. Then in verse 13, he says, for, which gives us uh, causal, this, he's explaining why this is the case. For, number one, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, fair enough. Then he goes on in verse 14 and says, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Like I said, we're not going to go into a deep dive into that. But when he says this, that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, we have to understand what is happening in the text there. And what's happening in the text is Paul is going all the way back to this very moment here, the moment of their sin, and he is rightly assigning all the blame to Adam. Now, you know, all the feminists out there, they they should be really happy that Adam is uh, assigned the blame for the sin and not Eve, because according to kind of puerile, infant, immature logic, they might just go by the order in which it all happened. And if they did that, then we would hold Eve accountable. But as in one man, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all and through that one man, death came. And so death spread upon the whole world. Romans chapter five, uh, verse 12. Uh, when we recognize that it is, it is laid at the feet of Adam and notice as well that the Lord God calls to Adam. He doesn't call to Eve. He calls to Adam. The command had been given to Adam. The, uh, the, the command, which is really think of it this way, the word of God had been entrusted to Adam and Adam had a responsibility to take God's word and to communicate it accurately, fully, thoroughly, everything that you can say there to do that to an adequate extent for Eve. And it's clear that somewhere in there, he did not communicate that enough. Adam knew full well, and we talked about this in verses one to seven. He knew exactly what he was doing when he took the fruit and ate of it. But Eve was deceived, which means that she didn't fully know. She knew that she wasn't supposed to do that, but she didn't quite know, and she was able to be deceived. Adam would not, I don't believe he would not have been deceived at all by Satan if Satan had come to him, even with all the doubt, you know, had, has God really said? And he would have said, yes, God has said. That's exactly it. And don't twist the, God, the word of God because he didn't say you can't touch it. He just said, uh, and, and he didn't say that I couldn't eat of anything. He said I could eat freely. Uh, and he said I could do all these other things. And he just told me I can't do this one thing. I don't think he would have failed had it come to him first. But he specifically made the decision to, to participate in breaking God's command. So it's interesting as well to note that God calls to the man. He doesn't call to Eve, even though God surely knows in his omnipotence and omni, uh, sorry, his omniscience that Eve is the one who did it first. This isn't an issue of timing. It's an issue of who bore the responsibility to keep the command, which is why he talks to Adam. So then you have this blame shifting. So Adam says, hey, listen, 
Eve, you know, she, she told me to do this. She, she gave me the fruit, uh, and I ate. And so then he says to the woman, what have you done? And the serpent deceives me. So all this blame shifting. Now, of course, it's going to stop here with the serpent. And, and, and we understand that. Uh, there's no more. He can't go to Satan and Satan doesn't have anybody else to blame. I mean, he's already fallen from heaven. He's wicked. Uh, he, uh, is a deceiver. He's a liar and a murderer, the father of lies right from the very beginning. And so as soon as his fall happens, he is absolutely on the hook for this. And so this really concludes the section of, uh, disfellowship here, the broken fellowship that's defined for us in verses eight to 13. And now it ends with this blame shifting. And of course, God is infinitely wise. He's all knowing. He can see right through everything. And so rather than negotiating with him saying, I didn't really do it. And I didn't understand. I mean, there's none of that. And I, I say that because as a parent and watching and observing other parents, I I know what it is to give a clear command to a child and then to have them come back you know, 30 minutes later or an hour later, and then the commandment has been broken and they say, I didn't fully understand, or I didn't hear you or something like that. And sometimes, you know, there are some times when it's not tricky. And then there are other times when it's actually tricky and you're like, well, I, I got to give the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe they didn't quite hear me. Maybe they didn't really understand me. And of course, you know, they're trying to get out of whatever's coming their way. But there's no doubt here. God makes no mistakes. And so when he meets out the consequences uh, of their sins uh, and the penalty that's going to come, he is absolutely right in doing it. So let's dive into this. We may not get all the way through it here, uh, but we'll see. Uh, he Let's look now and start looking at the curse pronounced, and we'll probably just get uh, to the first part of it here. Uh, He says to the serpent in verses 14 and 15, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay couple things here. Number one, the curse to the serpent is this, and this is really interesting because he curses the animal that Satan has inhabited, uh, not necessarily Satan himself, but, uh, you know, and I have friends who are herpetologists and, you know, there's something fascinating about snakes. I know some people really don't like them, but once you get to understand them, you understand they're, they have a very beneficial uh, aspect to our ecosystem and, you know, where we live in South Florida, they're great for rodent control and other things like that. And, and really there's only four venomous snakes in Florida and your chances of having a bad encounter with them are, as long as you understand snakes and their nature, you know, it's pretty rare. And all the other snakes that you could possibly see, those are good snakes to have around. But regardless, <laughs> uh, you know, we do have this natural aversion to snakes and we see some sort of change that takes place. So when Satan comes to Eve and is talking to her, we don't know. And we talked about this earlier that it could be that there was some sort of physiological difference. Remember they have, uh, they have the ghost appendages. They have everything there skeletally to indicate that maybe there were limbs, vestigial limbs, Uh, in the skeleton, but now God curses the snake, the serpent, 
uh, to go around on his belly for the rest of all the days of his life and eat dust. So there's a lowly estate for the rest of the time in the sin-cursed world. Every time we see a snake, no matter how beneficial they are to the, the environment and the ecosystem and everything, remember that the snake is a symbol of Satan and his deception. And, and because he goes around that way and all the other, I mean, even ants get to walk around and are a little bit raised from the ground, but a snake has to just slither in the dirt. And that is to be a reminder. We have reminders all around us. I mean, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We have natural revelation that points us to God and baked into creation. Now, every time we see a snake slithering on the ground, it is a reminder to us of the fall and of sin and of the curse that came afterwards. But then in verse 15, it is a curse to the snake and not necessarily to the snake as a, just a a type of animal, but to Satan himself, we have here in verse 15, and this is incredible, what's called the proto-gospel or the proto-euangelion, if you're going to give it its correct title, uh, but the first gospel mentioned. So here we are, ver- you know, chapters 1 and 2 uh, account and detail for us the creation, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3, the fall, and then immediately after the fall, before we get to Cain and Abel or anything else, there is the promise of the gospel. This is beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful. Verse 15 is the first gospel. And so he, there's a gospel forecast. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now he's really talking to Satan here, not to the snake, I believe, uh, and between your offspring and her offspring, uh, talking about the, the, the demonic uh, and, and those things, right? So there's going to be some minor success for Satan, but then there's going to be followed a permanent defeat. And it says that he shall bruise your head, which is this idea of crushing Satan's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, He will receive a grave injury, but he will overcome that. And of course, you know, we don't know anything about Abraham. We don't know anything about Isaac or Jacob. We don't know about Israel. We don't know about the 12 tribes. We don't know anything about the tribe of Judah, of David, uh, of David's descendants. We don't know about any of that. We don't know about Mary. We don't know about Joseph's lineage. We know nothing that points us to Jesus Christ other than somebody is going to come, an offspring of the woman, and you are going to have a little bit of of a temporary victory over him, but then he is going to end up crushing you. Who knew that all these years later, I mean, we look on this now and we're some 6,000 years removed from this, that it would be all this time later. I, I can tell you with some confidence that it's probably likely that when uh, Abel was born to Adam and Eve and he is the first seed from the woman to be born, they probably look to Abel as that hope and that fulfillment of this gospel promise here in verse 15. And of course, then (laughs) their second born son, uh, Cain comes along and kills Abel. And so that hope is dashed. And then, you know, you know how it goes from there, but it's really, really, uh, beautiful that right here in the midst from the very beginning, the very first consequence, uh, of sin and the curse here, is pronounced against the serpent, with it comes the hope of the gospel. And so we see in this, not only is there, is there going to be salvation and, def, you know, salvation uh, from sin, there's going to be a, a, 
there's going to be an overturning of the effects of sin. Now, that's not all explicit here, but for sure, there's going to be a deliverance from Satan and the things that he's done. And of course, if we understand that theologically, that's going to have to mean uh, not only Satan's full and final and total defeat and overthrow, which is going to be in the lake of fire, uh, but it's also going to have to deal with sin as well. It's all bound up there in that verse and then fleshed out in all the rest of the pages of Scripture. Well, that's all we have time for today. We'll come back and pick up the text in verse 16 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.